0: Well, good morning, Church of the Cross. I uh, want to thank Peter for inviting me to preach, um, and thank you for the introduction as well. Uh, the church has been a real blessing to Jisha and to I for the last two years, and so it's a real privilege to stand before you guys today. Um, these last few months, I've been re-watching on Netflix one of my favorite TV shows, The West Wing. Uh, If you are interested in politics or have political pretensions, you've probably checked out the show (laughs) at some point. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the show, it's about political aids at the White House during a fictional presidency. And uh, recently, an episode caught my attention. In this particular episode, uh, there's a staffer named Donna Moss, and she's sent on a fact-finding trip to Israel to learn about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And while there, she gets bored of being stuck in unproductive meeting after unproductive meeting, and so she decides to skip her remaining meetings, go out into the countryside, and be particularly with the Palestinian people. She wants to know what's going on with the Palestinian side of the conflict. And what she finds there is this tense situation where the movements of the Palestinian people are heavily restricted by Israeli military checkpoints. So basically, if you're a Palestinian, very often you will be prevented from traveling from one town to another town in the region, or even uh, from one part of the city to another part of the city. From the perspective of Israel, these restrictions are needed to provide for Israel's security, especially from terrorist attacks. But from the perspective of the Palestinians, these restrictions are not just inconveniences. Uh, they produce all sorts of dysfunctions in the society. There are days or weeks or even months where you can't get to your job to do work, to earn money to provide for your family because of these roadblocks and security checkpoints. And this produces a kind of listlessness among the Palestinians. So in the show you see these scenes where families and people in the town are seemingly frozen in place nowhere to really go, nothing to really do. Except that they're not actually frozen, right? Time is still marching on. And with the passage of day after day, with nothing changing and no prospect of things ever changing, the listlessness turns to frustration, which turns ultimately into rage and violence. And in the episode, Donna sums up her assessment of the situation by calling the Palestinians a people waiting without expectation. Now, I honestly have no idea how accurately the West Wing conveyed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is very complicated, uh, and I make no claims about that for the purposes of my sermon. Uh, But that idea of a people waiting without expectation and the kind of dysfunction that produces, that stuck with me. If you're anything like me, then part of what has made life difficult during COVID is exactly the sense of waiting without expectation, of going through day after day with no feeling of forward progress. And even though there's been really great news about the vaccine recently, still no clear sense of when things will change, when things will improve. Actually, if you're anything like me, uh, then part of what makes life difficult, period, even without COVID, is waiting without expectation. And the feelings of futility and even despair that can accompany that. So it's very good and appropriate to be reminded in this season of Advent that the Christian life is actually not like that at all. The Christian life is a waiting with expectation. It's a waiting with hope. And just as the despair and futility of waiting without expectation can produce a kind of dysfunction, the flip side is also true. Waiting with expectation, waiting with hope, can produce a healthy kind of life. Our passage for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 28, shows us, shows us the kind of life that waiting with Christian hope produces. This morning we're gonna examine this passage to understand three things. First, what Christian faithfulness looks like. Second, the hope that motivates Christian faithfulness. And third, the reason to trust that hope. So let's start with what Christian faithfulness looks like. This passage, which was read earlier as our first lesson, is the conclusion of Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian Christians. And by my count, Paul writes about 17 different instructions or commands or exhortations on how the Thessalonian Christians ought to live. So let me just run through them real quick. Verses 12 to 13, Acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Verse 13, Live in peace with each other. Verse 14, Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Verse 15, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Verse 16, rejoice always. Verse 17, pray continually. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Verses 20 to 22, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Verse 25, pray for us. Verse 26, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. And verse 27, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. That's a lot of instructions. That's 17 commands crammed in 17 verses. That's a lot. What's Paul doing here? To answer that question, let me set some context for this passage, which is at the end of the letter. The backstory for the letter as a whole is actually found in Acts chapter 17, where Paul and his coworker Silas go to the Greek city of Thessalonica and after just one month of preaching the gospel of Jesus there, a large number of Jews and Gentiles are converted. They acknowledge Jesus as Lord, and they formed the first church community there. But Paul's announcement of Jesus as the true Lord of the world led to suspicion of the community by their pagan neighbors, and that quickly led to trouble. Within a short period of time, the Christians in Thessalonica were accused of defying or opposing Caesar, the Roman emperor, because they said that there was another king, Jesus. This led to a persecution that got so intense that Paul and Silas had to actually flee from the city, which was painful for them because they loved the people they had met there so much and had spent only a relatively small amount of time with them. So, this letter is Paul's attempt. To reconnect with the Thessalonian Christians after he gets a report from another one of his companions, Timothy, that the Thessalonian church was not just surviving, but actually thriving despite the persecution. So what's my point? My point is this. This entire letter is really a celebration of the Thessalonian church's faithfulness to Jesus and an exhortation to continue to grow in that faithfulness. And so by the time we come to the end of the letter, Paul is not just giving us some random you know, laundry list of 17 instructions packed in the last 17 verses of the letter. Paul here is restating and re-summarizing themes and ideas that he spent the entire letter unpacking. And the big idea here is basically this. In a situation where the Thessalonians were ostracized by their neighbors, and isolated from their families for transferring their allegiance from Roman institutions and Roman gods to faith in King Jesus, Paul is exhorting the Thessalonian church to live united as brothers and sisters of one another. Paul is charging the church in the midst of a hostile society to live peaceably with one another as God's family and to seek the good of their pagan neighbors who are oppressing them. A life of Christian faithfulness looks like this. It looks like a loving participation in God's family. And I think this is a word for us here today. There's a temptation to treat the church either as a cultural artifact, like you go to church because you're the kind of person who goes to church, your parents were the kind of people who went to church, or as a kind of market transaction. This is the place you go to get your religious goods and services. But the kind of Christian community Paul envisions here is more like that of a close-knit family, where you honor the elders who instruct and admonish you, where you have to learn how to live peaceably and patiently with your brothers and sisters even when they annoy you, and where you refuse to retaliate for wrongs done against you by hostile neighbors and instead seek your enemy's good. A healthy life of Christian faithfulness looks like loving participation in God's family. That's the first point. But these verses, like any other instructions in the Bible, could be picked out and used to burden you or bang you over the head with guilt. Are you praying unceasingly? Are you submitting to the elders when they admonish you? Are you uh, praying for one another, never returning wrong for wrong? I think to do that would be a mistake. To use these verses in that way would be a mistake. To do that is to really distort the message of the text because the logic of the text makes clear that Paul is not just giving us a lengthy to-do list. Here's how to live like God's family. Do this, do this, do that. Instead, Paul is showing us that the kind of life of living like God's family, this kind of life flows out of a natural larger hope. It naturally flows out of a larger hope. So what is that hope? Look at the prayer in verse 23. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the letter and in this verse, Paul connects the holiness of the Thessalonian church, the countercultural life of the Thessalonian church, with the future coming of Jesus Christ, which he also refers to earlier in the letter as the day of the Lord. What's the connection? How does the future hope motivate the faithfulness of the Thessalonian church? Well, think about it. Your expectation of the future drives how you behave today in all sorts of ways. Here's this one kind of small example, common sense example, you show up to work with the expectation that in two weeks or in a month, you're going to get a paycheck. And if your employer told you that in the future you should not expect that paycheck, you probably would change your behavior, right? It's the exact same logic. Expectations about the future drive present behavior. Paul tells the Thessalonian church earlier in the same chapter, in chapter 5, earlier in, uh, I think, verses 1 to 11, Look, it's nighttime. There are all kinds of evil behavior around you, and people think they can get away with it because it's dark outside and no one can see what they're doing. But you know that with Jesus Christ, daylight is coming when all evil deeds will be exposed and judged and all goodness will be praised and rewarded. So live in the light now. So what does this mean for you and me? What this means is that you and I are not a people waiting without expectation. Your life is not just the dreary passage of day after day with no sense of forward movement, with no sense of where history is going. We are told that history is moving towards a goal. You have a hope and that hope is a second coming of Christ. The Old Testament writers refer to the day of the Lord as the glorious and terrible consummation of all of human history. It's the moment where God's holiness and beauty and justice are fully manifested on earth as in heaven, where all injustice and oppression are finally judged and ruled incompatible with God's good creation. And the writers of the New Testament, like Paul in this letter, inextricably, inextricably link the hopes and warnings of the day of the Lord with the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's when Jesus reappears that God's holiness and beauty and justice are fully manifested. The second coming of Christ means that when you look forward in time, you don't just see your days terminating in an empty void. You don't just see your own death looming. The horizon to which you look forward is that day when Jesus comes again, when his holy city comes down as a bride from heaven, adorned for her husband. Death will be swallowed up by the life and love of God. And that means that the way you live now actually matters. So the hope that motivates Christian faithfulness is this hope, hope in the second coming of Christ. And finally, that brings us to my last point. Why should you trust that hope? Because you could be thinking, so far through what I've been saying, that's a pretty sentiment, Brian. History is moving towards a glorious consummation in Christ, and maybe that hope would motivate me to live a certain kind of life, a life of loving participation in the family of God, like you said. But why should I believe that hope? What reason do I have to trust that hope? And verse 24 gives us the answer. You can trust this hope because of the character of God. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This isn't baseless hope. This isn't the power of positive thinking. This isn't just asserting that the arc of the universe bends towards justice, despite all evidence to the contrary. You believe in this hope because you know the character of God. And you know the character of God because he has revealed himself through his mighty acts in history, through his word to the prophets and the apostles, and ultimately and supremely through the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ. God the Son was written into human history as the perfect human being, the man Jesus of Nazareth. And he lived the life that all human beings are supposed to live totally obedient to the Father, totally filled with the Holy Spirit. And he died an atoning death on your behalf, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended and now reigns at the right hand of the Father. And my point is this. This is not just a pretty thought. This is a fundamental claim about human history. This God has proven himself to be utterly trustworthy. He created you. He loves you. He died to save you from sin, death, wrath, and the devil. And he promises you that he's coming back for you and for all of creation. So you can believe him. So to recap, God calls you to a life of faithfulness, which looks like loving participation in his family. This life of faithfulness is not just another burden laid on you, but a natural outflow of the hope you have in Jesus' second coming. And you can trust in Jesus' return because his life, death, and resurrection unmistakably reveal to us God's trustworthy character. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Let us pray. O God of peace, we pray that you would sanctify us through and through. And keep our spirits, souls, and bodies blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.